Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears, where our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. Today, we are joined by a very dear friend of mine, Ross Nickel. Ross is an organisational development consultant with New South Wales Health. In this great interview, Ross shares with us his wisdom and experience on developing high-performance teams team culture and team charters. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project where our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We have a very special guest with us today, Ross Nickel, who is an organisational development consultant inside the New South Wales Department of Health. Now, Ross and I have known each other for quite a long time without showing our age, but more than a decade. And we have worked on the development of high-performance teams, the development of team culture, and in particular, implementation of things like team charters before. And we'll probably delve into some of that during the conversation. So today's conversation will be about that, how you do develop an organisation, how you develop organisational culture, and what it might mean for the leader and also for developing high-performance teams. So, Ross, please say hello to our uh, audience and give a little bit of uh, your background. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, yeah, Ross Nickel. I've predominantly worked inside of organisations over the last 20 years. So I've been in uh, Vodafone, MLC, Talis, where I met Mick, and, and now I'm in New South Wales Health here in Australia. And I'm passionate about learning and development, and I'm passionate about people's uh, opportunity to grow within the realm of where their possibility is. It's exciting. It's exciting to work with people and have permission to help them grow their leadership and their capabilities. I used to be a school teacher, so I've been passionate about learning for a very long time and about seeing what people can be about in the very thing that's in front of them, not not focusing on what's wrong but on what's possible. Some great insights there, Ross. I'm going to come back to some of those things for sure during the interview. So, school teacher, um, tell us a little bit more about uh, your your upbringing and and what led you into teaching as a passion and as a profession. I left high school without an interest in teaching, and I found myself unemployed. And they were supporting people to go and do teaching, and so I transitioned into it, and I found it a real passion. And I think I learned that from passion for educating and supporting some groups of people from a, a man named Bill Plaisier, who was a senior youth worker here in, in Newcastle, where I live. And he taught, taught us about small group work. And it's where I first learned the idea of an I state. And it really sparked my interest in giving people knowledge and information 
that helps them think about themselves and the spaces they're in. I started out as an industrial arts teacher, woodwork and, and metalwork, but I've moved away from that technical education very much to people. And I, I did love it. I, and I think I went into, and I hope, hope this is true, my classrooms as a teacher to learn as much as to educate others. And I learned so much from, from the kids. That, that, that helped me in life. Yeah, you know, teaching's a wonderful thing to have been a part of. Two things I'd like to unpack there, Russ. The first one is that passion. What is it that drives a teacher? What, what is the energy that you get? Because uh, yeah, we must say that most teachers I've ever met do have that. What is it inside a teacher that brings out that passion? It makes me think about a union meeting I went to many, many years ago when I was first a new, you know, first year teacher and. And this deputy principal from a primary school stood up and said, teaching is a vocation. It's a calling. And the best teachers come from that place of pure interest in the students and their potential. And sometimes that's difficult because students don't want to learn all the time. But the exciting thing is when they make those shifts. So when I think back about being a teacher, I taught kids to saw a piece of wood. Sounds like it's a really simple thing, but there's a whole lot of skill sets a whole lot of techniques involved in that. And when they get it, they feel good about themselves. And then they go and either do it again or do it with someone else. Can I give you an example in, more in a, a, a workplace setting? In health, I ran a, a program for you know frontline to mid-level leaders, a clinical leadership program. There was a guy in there who was a technical expert in nursing, and I coached him. And he did the course for over six, nine months. And the next year, I was coaching one of his colleagues. And she said to me, you know, I was with this guy and we were talking. And halfway through, I said to him, are you coaching me? He'd learnt the skill that he'd learnt, that he'd done on the course and that I'd modelled, but he was doing it. And I was so proud to hear that he'd grown and used something new and it learned the nuances of something to be able to do it in a way that someone, oh, you're doing that thing. And it comes from co- contribution. So I I'm really want to contribute to others. And that's grown. So I guess being a teacher, that part of me uh, helps people, contributes to people and see something come from that down the track. Uh, I had a year 12 student who was in, in a design course with me in Wood, went on to do our first class honours at uh, AN University in Wood in an art course. I was so proud to see the work that he did uh, in his final exhibition. So, you, you know, that was years later, five years later. Yeah, it's just about that. A personal reflection there, Ross, and I'll share with the audience that some of the most amazing moments in my career as a leader, a mentor and a coach have been exactly like that. Watching these moments where someone stands up and flourishes or blooms, someone that you've been coaching and mentoring for some time, and you see the fruits of that come to life, it really Exciting. is rewarding. Yeah. It yeah. is, I'll say this carefully in case my employers are uh, listening and they want to cut my salary, that is reward in itself. You don't have to pay me to do that. I'd do that any day of the week 
to watch someone develop like that. It is my personal reward and it's the fuel that really uh, drives and, and motivates me. So that's a wonderful share there, Ross. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one that feels that way. The other one that you mentioned before that got my attention and the audience may not be familiar with that, you said I statement. What is an I statement? Oh, wow. God, this is the, the simplest piece of learning I, I got and I've passed it on to hundreds and hundreds of people. The principle is to say, when you do this and this, I feel this and this. The impact of that is this. And the power of it isn't that you're making somebody else wrong. You did this to me. It's that you're owning what's going on for you, saying how you feel, and it allows the other person to be in a better place to hear it, but it also means the other person can't deny it. It's I. It's with me. It's real for me. I I think what it does for you is puts you, it, it names without blaming others what is there. And that's a really powerful thing. If you, you've probably been in many situations and lent your ear to people who've just said, thank you for listening to me. When it comes out, people know it about themselves. And when they're clearer about that, I experience this, I feel this, they're able to take action with the two. That creates the next potential. And I statements, very, very simple communication tool, very powerful. I like that on multiple levels, Ross, and I encourage the audience to think about that. Think about the different engagements that you have. What I like about what I'm hearing from Ross is a lot of self-awareness, checking in with yourself and thinking about the context and the situation you're in and being clear about what emotion that you're feeling and, and what is actually happening to you at that moment. And then being open and transparent with the other party It's almost like projected empathy so that they can understand you and understand your perspective in the interest of a rich conversation and going to the next level with that party. What's your reflection on those statements, Ross? It allows you to go to the next level. There may be a reactive thing in that person because they become defensive, but you keep an eye on that and go, hold it. This is where I'm at. How are we going to move forward from this together? We're in this together. And you've got to to be careful not to blame, put blame in that I statement. That's not an I statement when you're adding blame to it. But you may have a request in it. I would appreciate if you could do this. That can be part of the I statement, the next phase. The other thing I want to add to that, it reminds me of a conversation we had many, many years ago, almost the first conversation we have, when we're using an I statement, we're not apologizing or seeking approval for our thoughts. We're not opening up a statement with, oh, I'm sorry, I think this, which denies your thought. Other people can discount that thinking. They're just, you're just saying it as it is. I'm, I've got a concern. What I'm feeling about that is if we went that way, this is what I see, what I'm concerned about. So you, you, you can not discount yourself but you hold a strong space for yourself and for the possibility of relating better to the other person. There's many powerful things I'm hearing there as well, Ross, and I want to summarise them and, and please correct me if I 
get anything there wrong. The removal of qualifiers, so you're just stating it as a fact of how you feel at that moment. The removal of blame, so it's not an accusation, it's just a statement of fact of how you feel at that moment. And the removal of judgment are the three things that I'm picking up from the way you're crafting those I statements. And I want to add something to that's fantastic. What I want to add to that is if you remove those things, then you fill the space with other things, the positive things, the continuing conversation, the possibility of collaboration, the possibility of acknowledgement. I, I said recently to a colleague, the most important thing here right now, even though we're having a difference, is that we remain colleagues and we find a way through this together. That's the most important thing. Whereas if you do those other things, the four or so things that you mentioned, the possibility of moving forward isn't there. So, yeah, putting those things aside and creating the, the, the way to move forward together through commitment and through clear statements like an ISA. Now we're getting somewhere as well because you've now used words, very powerful words throughout that. You've words of words together, collaboration and moving forward. And I would say once you've gotten through that I statement, I believe the next most powerful thing to do would be to look for some reciprocation and whether that reciprocation comes naturally or whether you might need to use some selective use of searching questions to try to empathise with the other person as well. And then you can move forward and build together. In in the organisation I'm in now, we're – We've got a set of values called core values, collaboration, collaboration, openness, respect, empowerment. And there's a little model for having a core chat, and it's that very thing. And uh, you know, some of the people I've worked with and trained and coached in using that tool said, you know, I spent days being really fearful of the conversation. But when I had the core chat, it took two minutes. The other person got it, and they apologised. Mm, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that as well. I, I like the, the sound of this core process. But there was other, there was something else that you picked up there as well, which was someone having anxiety about a conversation for two days leading up to a conversation. That's not necessarily healthy, but it is important to have processes to manage that. Very interesting. Okay. Well, I had a feeling that this conversation was going to go like this, Ross, that you and I would just pick on a topic and, and we'd end up going quite deep very quickly, but not, not surprised at that at all. Okay, Ross, I'd like to now come back to your career. Can you tell us more about how you transitioned from being a teacher into the corporate world and in culture development inside large organisations? So go back to the person I mentioned before, um, Bill Plazier, when I did that small group work and I was inside of a Christian church context. But I, I learned that you could work with older young people and adults and have much more interesting conversations. So I was really open to this idea of working with adults. Um, I got my first job working with adults in the State Library of New South Wales, a fantastic place to work. Um, but I was running programs for uh, long-term unemployed young people and then adults. Um, and I just got opportunities there also to work with the staff. And this really grew into a, a strong interest in working with people in the way that I spoke before about their potential, about doing interesting things. And I, I must say, I enjoyed being the educator, enjoyed that 
person who facilitate facilitated those moments. I did a master's in adult education. I did a master's before that in sociology, very much in understanding people and people's ways of working. And through my own research, grew an understanding of what builds potentials in organizations. Well, people use their own mastery, their own specializations, whether you're a librarian, whether you're in finance in, in MLC, or whether you're an engineer in TALIS. People had common needs. And then that expanded into growing an understanding of what leaders do that makes a difference in how to make that transition from being a team member to being a leader. And there seems to be a set of core capabilities or core ways of working. It's different for different people because we're all, we come to it with a different way. But creating, I got very interested in creating the opportunities for growth and development, which I've referred to before, particularly in leadership. And I, I got my first touches into that at MLC and I ran um, large groups of people through team building processes. I did some training for people in leadership. That's where I really got my first opportunities to work with leaders um, and uh, gain my accreditation uh, in human synergistics, lifestyles, inventory, coach people. Um, I did my coach training with David Rock, uh, who's uh, you know set up the Neuro Leadership Institute. His previous organisation was Results Coaching Systems. Um, I was in his second group of, of training for coaches in 1999. It was fantastic. It, people would say to me, you know, Ross, would you be someone who would take up counselling? No, it's not where I want to go. Uh, but when I discovered what coaching is, it's about a conversation that supports people to go where they want to go, to set that out for themselves. And you hold that space for them to walk into it and meet the challenges and so on. So I became really interested in you know, supporting people to deliver what they want to deliver, to become what they want to become. Um, also at MLC, you know, within the unit I was in, I looked after the engagement survey at Hewitt and saw lots of insights into how organizations help to grow people's potential, their commitment to the organization that they speak positively about it, and they give this discretionary effort. did a whole lot of reading from the corporate executive board, research, international research on, on these kinds of things. How do you motivate people? How do you engage people with feedback and build high potential teams? So I really, yeah, I, I guess I matured into it. And Talis gave me a fulfillment of that. That's where I started running. Um, really quite senior leadership programs. Fantastic. You know, I'm passionate about what I get to do. And that's where we met each other, which is a, a part of a, a wonderful journey in my career. And you have been instrumental, I believe, uh, Ross, in some of the formative years of my leadership journey. And I'll always be eternally thankful to you for that. Say that very openly for you and, and for everyone on the podcast to hear. The Interesting things that you're touching on there, you did mention about the differences between being a, a coach and being a counsellor or a therapist. Uh, you've heard on previous episodes of the podcast talking about the difference between a coach and a consultant, the difference between a co coach and a teacher. There's no right or wrong in any of that. They're just all different mindsets 
and they all have their their place and sometimes you'll take one hat off and you'll put another one on and they all have their their role in the world so and it's great to see your development through all of that ross uh, to be the person that you are today Mm, yeah it's been a fantastic privilege uh, you get to do this work with it's such a privilege i quite often at the end of coaching sessions i will say to people thank you you know what i need to say to be complete is to thank you for trusting me It, it is a privilege it's good the other thing that you touched on ross that is music to our ears here at the leadership project because really it's one of the fundamental reasons why we exist was about that transition that people make from being an individual contributor through to being a leader and having that sometimes sudden realization other times it takes longer but a sometimes sudden realization that human beings are very complex and the skill set that you need as a leader is very different to being an expert in your domain. Can you share your reflections on that, on that realisation stage when someone goes from IC to a leader the first time, what do you think are the things that they struggle with the most? Oh, there's, a, there's three things come to mind, and I'm thinking of a particular person, but I've had this conversation many, many times. And this was a woman um, in Tallis who worked running a logistics administrative team. She was on a program that we developed and designed there and, and was run by an external consulting company who were fantastic. Naus is their name. And they... This young woman I, I spoke with a number of times while she was on this program, some informal uh, conversations or coaching, if you like. And she was so embedded in doing really, really well. And that her work ethic was really strong. She'd, you know, succeeded in that and got the role as a manager, but probably because of that, that, that being that expert, but also being a really, really good employee who delivered things. So one of the challenges for that transition is to let go. And that's really hard because the things that got you to where you are as a leader, um, as more senior positions, is the very thing you may need to let go of. And, and when, it's, when we do things, as a profile, the team management profile talks about um, getting really practiced at things and enjoying it, and therefore you want to do more of it, and therefore you enjoy it more and you do it more and more. So it's hard to let go of the things you're really good at, but that that's one of the first things you must do. If you don't let it go, then your team members can't do it. And uh, one of those things is then to learn to delegate. So you've got to let go and enable or give the work to others. And uh, I learned a really good piece from a, a manager I had at, at MLC on this is allow the work at the highest level to be done at the, the highest level of that work to be done at the lowest level possible. People will gain a lot of satisfaction out of stepping up into work that they haven't done before. And you've got to let go of it and trust them to do it. Delegation doesn't mean you stop you stop supporting that person and let them fall over. You're actually with them in that journey. And the third thing is that you must embrace the work of managing and leading. And that can take a whole lot of shifts of self-concept, of identity, and fear. Thinking of a a manager who I coached uh, in health um, over the last year. And she 
came out of the team. So that's harder again because these were colleagues and friends and all of that. And she resisted doing a, a really good process that we have in health, in some parts of health called leader rounding, going out and, and informally, but with the process, having conversations with the team. It's a bit like the lean principle of like, go to the Gemba, go to where the true work is done. And um, she was resisting it because of fear. So you've got to move into your fearful things, embrace those things that feel awkward. And in the coaching, and sometimes you just do tough coaching, it's time for you to do this, I said to her. Are you going to embrace it? Are you willing to do this? And we set a number. You know, In the next four weeks, you're going to do this many leader rounding and go and talk to your staff. And she practiced it and she became very good at it. You've got to step into and embrace those things that, that it takes to be a leader and manager. And what I find with that is that people discover something. They discover why they step into that role. And the thing you referred to earlier, one of the things that drives some of that passion is like they get to develop other people and see them come on. Yeah, there's some of my insights. Yeah, really good, Ross. And the one I'd like to pick on there is that letting go. That can be difficult for people, particularly if they've been particularly good at their craft, particularly if they are proud of their work and potentially a bit of a perfectionist. It is then difficult to step back and realise that your role is now to develop others. Yeah. It's to develop others to do the role that you used to do. It's to develop future leaders too, by the way. The the greatest leaders are the ones that develop other leaders, right? Yeah. It is difficult. And for anyone listening on the podcast today that is going through that transition, that is going to be a challenging one and you you do need to think about that. It's it's really, really true. You can't allow others to take it on unless you let it go, but you can't take on what you could potentially become if you don't let go. Um, That doesn't mean you lose your expertise or your ability to coach people to the level of expertise that you've had. But as I think as you inferred, you'd be really proud of those people who excel and go past you. That's one of the success outcomes of, of being that leader. They could become even better experts than you were in the specialization. I met a, a guy many, many years ago who managed a team of people he had no knowledge in their expertise. And he said, that's okay. I need to be really good at, a, at enabling them to succeed as a team. They've got the expertise I don't need to have. So the skill set of a managing and managing is distinct from the expertise that we that we started with. I fully subscribe to that, Ross. I totally believe that that is a very a reasonable expectation that that people can do that. You don't have to be an expert in everything. And in fact, uh, if think back to some of the things that Su Lin Lau shared with us about intellectual humility. You're actually pe- probably sometimes better off checking that at the door and and being more curious instead of uh, being an expert in your domain and, and everyone thinking, oh, uh, there's Mick or there's Ross. They've got the answers to everything, right? So you don't want to be the oracle of all knowledge. You want to be the facilitator that allows people to grow. The um, it, it makes me think of a really good senior manager head at MLC, Tony Satu is his name. And we were both attending a training course on coaching. And it was run by a, a guy named Peter Farley, who was really one of my informal mentors um, in those early days of my development. And Tony's complaint was that 
all his staff, really senior people, keep coming to him to give them advice and to, to give them the answers. And in the he he got to be coached by Peter in the course. And what came out was he kept doing this. Tony did because it made him feel really good because he's really really good at giving the answers. And so people kept coming with the question. So he was not building capability in, in his own people, quite senior people, to have the answers for themselves. And once he learned that, he said to me some years later, you know, I don't work that hard, Ross. I have really good people around me. They become really good people because, because of who you are as a leader and manager. Yeah, so coming back to that letting go, if you're not able to let go, you will never develop the people. If you do become the answer to every single question, you're not allowing your team members room to grow and room to think for themselves. And sometimes... Oh, sorry, and, and you'll actually be paying a price because you'll be working really, really hard and you're likely to be really tired. Correct, right, which is going to limit your ability yeah. to scale yeah. as a team and as a business for sure. Yeah. And finally... Um, what you'll become is a dependent. You'll become a dependency that the business is always relying on and you won't be giving that ability to to allow people to learn how to think for themselves and discover their own answers. So one of the things that I'm not going to say is unusual about you, Ross, but it's very specific. That would be the better term. Something that's very specific about you is that you are a internal development consultant. So you do organizational development and culture development inside organizations. Share with us about what that means and how it might be different if you were doing that externally in a business. So I've, I've, I've done a little bit of work as an external consultant, but I've done vast majority of my last, you know, 20 plus years internally. And Meets my need because I really am group person, a team person. I like to be a part of something. When I'm interested in an organization and its people, it gets me to be close to that. I, I had a manager say, a senior manager, you know, VP level, a director level, say to me just recently, you know, you're one of my partners. And it honors the part I play, I guess, for, for that person. And so I, I get to fulfill something that I'm about. So that's why I've stayed to some degree inside organization. The distinction is uh, you've got some skin in the game because it's your organization and you know it in ways that an external consultant rarely gets to know. And so you can speak with some authority. It, it ran, you know, probably the peak of my time at Talis was to, to run the leading for results program and you know quite often these kind of programs are run by externals who the Ben Deltas or the Nauses or you know large organizations who bring deep expertise to this but I you know ran it with a colleague out of France um, here in the Asia Pacific region and when I stood up in front of the the leaders and they, all of them were more senior than I was I held the possibility of what the organization is about there was a program called Ambition 10, as you, as you know. There was a new leadership model. Um, and we had a set of values. And so I held them because I believed in I didn't just invite people to look at them or participate in them. I had them as my own. And so that brings a, 
an element to the internal consultant that an external consultant might not have. And so you get close to the work and believe in it. Again, I, you know, we talked about you know, some of the other work I did with team charters and working with teams. One of the best pe- people I worked with there was a, a guy named Tony Mills. He had a complex contract relationship with Navy because there was a third, a second party that they were working with who also had a contract with Navy. And I, I ran workshops on team charters with Navy, with multiple parts of that, Talis and then this other organization. And, you know, I think the part of the strength of my work was that I knew our organization and I knew its commitment to fulfill its contract, but also to do that in really deeply committed ways and value-based values based ways with, with the Australian Navy. And so, yeah, I, I spoke in the room with some sense of knowledge, but it, it also, I think, allowed me to ask deeper questions to enable deeper learning and, and really strong connection. So that's not to say that external consultants can't, don't and can't bring you know, great value, but to work closely with the, within the organization, to know the organization. And then it's complex because there are, you know, I was always part of a workforce or HR unit. And so there's nuances that are broad there about people, policy, practices, principles, direction, workforce planning, you know, salary, all of that. I had a knowledge of the organization's concerns in that space. So I'd bring that into the conversation. So lots of benefits of being an internal person to the customer, to my clients who were you know, your, people like yourself in the organisation. I am seeing some clear benefits there, Ross, and the things that I'm taking away from it is your level of ownership and buy-in, particularly to the vision and the mission of the organisation. And secondly, that understanding how the organisation works can be a great benefit in that. What about the challenges? What are the challenges of an internal consultant versus an external? The possibilities are best fulfilled when there's vulnerability. And I'm quoting Brene Brown's, you know, wonderful work in that space. And so I think I brought myself to it with a real honesty, but sometimes others and not necessarily the direct client internally would be have a concern and sometimes that I was operating in ways that I may not have had permission to. And that's really important to check in and not to, to go in and do any consulting work on your own. And so in, in the best situations of that, in the, the most aligned person to work with was HR business partner who had a broad organization feel, but in Talis and in other organizations, the best thing I've seen is where they're really embedded in the business. They report to their HR managers. And so you stay close to that and that is helpful. So, you know, there's a, a, a I'm, I am a, a passionate and interested person, and so I would get close to those that work with that, that leader. And I think I worked within the permission. So it's really important, whether you're an external consultant or an internal consultant, you work with to the level of permission that you've gained. You've got to be careful with that. And it's also important not to take ownership of something that's not yours. And this is a common story in HR, not just in my space in it, that the manager wants us to do that for them. And, you know, we can fall into the trap of doing it for them when it's their work. So one of the things that 
um, has really helped me is, and, and I did this with the team charter work that you and I did, is I, I lay out a clear contract. So contracting is a, a really good principle inside of good quality consulting. You, you, you do it when you contract to your customer, you know, to, to deliver something to a customer. So, you know, I set really clear boundaries and, and I will work with those leaders to say, to work with them on what they own. And this, my part in general was to create the environment or the facilitation workshop space, but I didn't own the outcome. I, I think one of the other things is um, that others might limit the possibilities. And, and I always saw great possibilities. I, I almost had the opportunity to facilitate the executive team in a strategy offsite one time. And others were concerned that, oh, no, no, you couldn't do that. And I'm, I'm someone who's kind of up for things. And as long as you get permission, it doesn't matter what level you're in the organization, you can guide a process. You know, I'm a true facilitator. You, you know that. And so, you know, I let it go and, and I found a very, very good external consultant who was a good friend of mine and did an amazing job. But I still believe I could have facilitated that session. So, you know, people may not see you as, as, as having that same potential. Sometimes when you come from an external organization and they, you know, you're charging five or $7,000 a day, they're happy to pay for that. And there's, there's some of the nuances of being internal. That, that raises something interesting about the, the famous saying that everyone is a prophet in someone else's land and potentially organisations do not always tap in to the extraordinary talent that they've got at their very fingertips inside their organisation already and that, like you said, the consultant coming in from outside charging the big dollars has somehow increased credibility even if they're on a similar standing to some people that you might have in an organisation. I think that is real. I think that still exists and it's something for us all to consider and ponder. It, it's true. One of the things that, that I've, I've always kept in mind was that that's okay. I've got lots of really good work to do and I'm respected for it. And, you know, I used to have some fun with it. I, I would say to a, a manager, senior manager that I'm coaching, you know, if I was an external coach, this would cost you $700 an hour. So I'm looking for you to work like you're paying me $700 an hour. You know, that I was wasn't charging it. It's, it's that, that, but, um, you know, to work at that level, then that also meant that I needed to be working at that professional level and stretching myself. I like that, Ross, and I like what you were saying before about essentially an internal contract that sets the expectations, sets the obligations of each party to make sure that you're working collaboratively to get to the outcome that the business needs. I really like that. Let's come back to the team charters. You've brought that up a few times and you and I developed a team charter together for one of the greatest stages of my career, which was the delivery of the Auckland ticketing system. And we had a team that was built across four countries, four time zones, three cultures. We had uh, people from New Zealand, people from Australia, people from Hong Kong, people from France, all working on a multinational project together. And we did do that step of a four-day team building and culture workshop that crescendoed towards a, a team charter. 
Now, I have my views clearly about that, but I'd like you to share with the audience about what you believe are the fundamentals to a team charter, why they're important, and what you could share with the audience about that. Well, I want to acknowledge someone as we step into this, um, David Morley, who runs his own consulting company now and his model for winning together, because uh, David had the opportunity to run that program for you, and he offered it to me. And it I, I grew to it. Um, you probably, I don't know if you knew, but it, it, you know, it's the first time I'd run it with that level of uh, intent and in, to ho- hold the possibility of, of the outstanding deliverable that came from that, that you know, the works in the room and the people uh, that you brought together to do that. So I want to acknowledge David. The, the key elements are an aligned group of people who own that and and you may recall that's part of that contracting you know I, I sat with you and uh, who was the leader from France I apologize um, uh, Bertrand Mathieu yeah so outstanding you know the, the the clear alignment that you two had to be in the room and then to own the outcome and, and model for that outcome it really essential I, I remember many years ago we were running a training program on coaching. And we thought the GM was staying. He came in and opened up the course and then he just left and all of his senior leaders went, huh? So you've got to be in the room and you're in that leadership, that commitment of that leader is essential. And I, I think you also got to create an experience that's shared. That's really important. So the what's the output, which is written down on a charter, what's as important as that is that there's a shared experience and people grow into the relationships and knowing one another and have had the knowledge that we struggled with this together. Um, we struggled with the words where we you know, use the word collaboration or we use the word together, referred to those words earlier, you know, on this particular thing. So I think that's really essential. And from a facilitation perspective, got to have very little footprint. It's not about me or my thoughts. And I, uh, I learned something um, once from, oh, I think it might have been Tony Mills I referred to earlier. I said, made a suggestion to somebody in, in, a, in one of these facilitations, and I didn't write up the words that they used. And they, he said to me, didn't like those words, did you? So you've got to be really mindful of not bringing yourself into it. And just whatever they say, write it up. That's really good. So I think it's essential to have that leadership, essential to create an experience and you can do that in a number of ways. You can use a profiling tool. You can use an experiential. And we did a simulation with Lego, you might recall. The third part of that is to just trust the binding that people can make through a commitment to what they then produce. And so the charter comes to life out of the work they do together and the commitment to do it, but it's how they're bound around that. And the charter you used didn't die when everyone left the room. In another set, setting, I, I ran into a, somebody who was an engineer in Talis. There were two groups working on one project, and there was a little bit of friction between the two of them. And he said, you know, if that charter hadn't been there, I can tell you I would have stepped across the line and hit somebody. And that was their commitment. You know, we're going to work through this together because we've got this set of shared values. And it's really descriptive. It's really quite prescriptive, but it's descriptive of the ways we will work together. There's a vision, there's some fundamental underlying principles, 
And then there's the set of behaviours that they commit to do together. Yeah. They're the key elements, I think. So I'll share my side of that exact same experience, Ross, for our audience. So the net result was a project that was delivered on time, under budget, and to a very much a delighted customer. It's still to this day the best project I've ever been involved in and I'll be bold enough to say that it's the most successful project that has been delivered in in that part of Talus. And what you managed to do during that team building and culture workshop and ultimately resulting in the team charter is you did facilitate us. It was a shared experience. We spent four days together in Hong Kong, all together as a multicultural team, and every one of us to this day will still remember the four days that we spent together. And that is, I've lost count, that is more than 11 years ago that we had that shared experience. And every one of us, if we ever run into each other, we talk about that shared experience back in those four days in Hong Kong. And what then resulted was... Yeah, it, you facilitated us to develop that together. It was our charter. It wasn't your charter. It was our charter. We took ownership of it and that was important in the way that we then put it in place yep. because we then lived by it. Yes. We lived by the values that we agreed on throughout the entire project. We lived by the operating principles that we agreed on, everything from how we would communicate with each other across multiple time zones to how we would treat each other with respect uh, throughout the project. And to me, it was a big investment at the start of a large project, but it was an investment that had a return on investment with multiples that I couldn't possibly start to calculate. And I'll always be grateful for what you personally did for us, Ross, in setting us up for success. Yeah. Thanks, Mick. I I think you know, and I've got this um, idea that I share at times. You know, people say, "Oh, we don't have time for that. We've got to get on with it." And uh, I, I say a simple thing to them: "You don't have time not to." Because if you don't do this, the problems will come up. And, and my successful team charter processes that I've run are with those people who took that time and then sincerely um, had leaders who held them to the possibility of living it. The other person I want to acknowledge is Kim Hall, who I know is a good friend of yours. And Kim was that HR person, but a senior HR, she was a director. She played a really important part in that is that she's a partner to the possibility. And and in the room came as an attendee and a participant, but also held the possibility of that. And so you've got to have people around this who believe, have real commitments to high performance in team and that. These come from having shared commitments, not not just from having skilled people who are experts, but having shared and common commitments and ways of communicating. And, and uh, Kim was played an important part in, in that. You're not going to believe this, Ross, but and I don't even have a name for what you call this. After a few years of not speaking to either of those, I've spoke to Kim Hall and David Morley today. 
that's unbelievable that we've uh, that we've ended up <laughs> there in the conversation today. But, but um, uh, for, the, for for the audience, watch. Well, they're significant people. No, they are. They're, and, they're, and, they're, they're meant the universe. The, the universe wants us to talk about. And and for and for the audience, and for David, and for Kim, watch this space because me reaching out to them today, you can start extrapolating that they might end up being future podcast guests on this very <laughs> on this very program. Oh, that's uh, wonderful, Ross. I'm so glad that we had this uh, this conversation. All right, uh, let's uh, start bringing us uh, to a crescendo then. In fact, you know what? I'm going to take a step back because I don't always get a chance to interview someone with your level of expertise. So with your permission, I want to ask you some challenging questions that I, I sometimes scratch my head about and we'll just see where we go with it. The first one... We spoke before about that transition from individual contributor to leader. I want to put out a challenging statement and get your reaction to it. I'm going to say that. Go on. Yep. I'm going to say that leadership is not for everyone. And just bear with me for a second. So sometimes you might end up with that person who is the best at their domain. And I'm just going to pick an example here. Let's say that they're the best solution architect that the company has ever seen. Mm -hmm. They get identified as having leadership potential and they get thrown into a leadership position and it turns out that maybe it it isn't for them. It's not their cup of tea. They don't enjoy it. Uh, They struggle with that transition, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And what you end up with is you end up with a double whammy because now – you've potentially lost your best solution architect because they're not doing their craft anymore and you've ended up with a poor leader who's not engaged and doesn't even want to do the job. And people don't want to work with because they, you know, they don't, uh, they don't, treat them well or they don't manage well. Because they're a horrible boss. Not, not because they mean to be, it's just not their thing. So my question to you, and I have to, tip my hat here to Talis and say that they did have a good program for this. But one of the limitations in many organisations is that if you don't take that leadership position, that it can be career limiting, that you can end up with giving yourself a ceiling as to how high you might end up getting, how well you might be rewarded, remunerated and recognised. What advice could you give to our audience about how organisations can set up structures for people that may never become leaders, but you still want to develop them in their craft so that they can be the best at what they do? This is a really good question. It's not one I've turned my head to very much. You've just tipped your hat a little bit to tell us they had a expert stream, like a third stream. Correct. Mm. And um, I hadn't seen it before and I haven't seen it since. In health, we have some really, really good experts and there is one or two that get to be promoted along that, but it's fairly rare. So not everyone in not every organisation has the resources to pay their experts as much as they pay their leaders. So let's be realistic about that and acknowledge that. But I, I would encourage organizations to acknowledge their seniors 
in in a nursing in a inpatient unit in a hospital. These are really crucial people who can be asked to take on responsibility or have opportunities for delivery of things who may not even want to be managers but are real experts. And so you want to honour. I think that's one of the things. It's actually Su Su Lim Lau you mentioned earlier. Is that have I got that name right? Yeah, Su Lin Lau. Yeah. You know, talked about the four H's in in Grab, and one of them is honour. And I think you know, demonstrating to people that they belong, that their expertise is deeply valued. You can do that in a number of ways. You can give them not extra work, but work that they're really interested in doing to do improvement. Instead of telling them to change their process and how to do it, you to get them to do it. You, we often talk about mentoring and in, in nursing and health, there's some really good work done with new uh, students or new employee. The talk I've heard from some of those senior people is how good they feel about at having passed on. And I must say, I have a deep respect for nurses valuing nursing and, and wanting to grow nurses. So you want to honor that, an organization wants to give that space. Also, the value of of recognition. So honoring it is, is part of that and giving them roles or tasks, but you know, just letting others know that if you need somebody, this is the person to talk to. And then when they do that work, recognizing them. We have an in, internal tool, which you know, I, I was able to be a part of launching called a thank you card. Make sure you send things to people appreciating them. And there's a whole lot of research into this and my sister-in-law works in safety leadership and there's an author called Aubrey Daniels who talks about the value of positive recognition because people will do it again and we all know the principle of that but if we count the number of times we give positive recognition in an environment where we're all worried about failure um, it's not that often research principle of five to one those kinds of things so really value and demonstrate the value of those experts because you, you probably don't want them to be leaders. You want them to stay in that expertise. So we often talk about talent programs, but we seem to limit that only to talent in leadership, talent in the next succession plan. We put talent and succession together. So I think organizations need to think more broadly than talent as only a leadership piece. Yeah, they're the things that come to mind. I really like what you're sharing there, Ross, and on both respects, the reward and recognition and understanding that reward and recognition needs to be personalized to the individual, what makes them tick, what motivates them, making them feel very much uh, valued and that they matter. And I like what you're talking there about talent development, having multiple streams. And I'll just conclude that with saying uh, for everyone listening that you might not be aware of what we were referring to with Talus. So Talus has an example where they have a technical expertise stream where you can climb the, let's say, the, the ladder of the organization for your technical expertise. And then there is a leadership stream and the leadership stream is is the path that the majority of people take. But the fact that there is a technical expertise stream, there is designed to cultivate those people in the organization who may not end up in a team leadership role, but are leaders in their own way. They are technical leaders of their their domain. It makes really good business sense because if you look at the, 
the outcomes, and I got to meet a couple of those people at Talus, the outcomes that they deliver, they, they don't want to leave the organization. They might not want to you know, have other opportunities, but they're worth a lot of money and somebody will poach them. It makes really good business sense if you can to pay them really well or to hold them close because you you show value of them. You know, many organizations can't pay, but you, know, you really want to highly value those, that expertise. They will follow you. And you may recall, Ross, that some of them, well, one of them in particular was a Nobel Prize winner. Um, others won uh, Academy Academy Awards for their technical development in video cameras, et cetera. I mean, deep, deep, deep technical experts, uh, not, ne- not necessarily people leaders. Yep. The other one to reflect on is uh, IBM. So IBM have a program called uh, uh, IBM Fellows and it's similar. It's it's designed to recognise people for their deep, deep technical expertise. And if anyone in the audience wants to look at either of those examples, it's, there's probably something to learn there. Well, th- thank you, Ross. I really appreciate this. Uh, we'll, we'll bring ourselves to a, a cl- close now. I'm going to ask you a question that I ask uh, all people that come on to the show, Ross, and that is, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were back in that stage of your career? So in those early stages, maybe in your 20s, maybe transitioning from uh, being an individual contributor into a leader, what's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew then? I think, and I haven't been this all all the time, but I, I, I wish I knew that it's okay to be brave and much, much braver than I than I was. That bravery is probably more important than a whole lot of the other things, your knowledges or your the things you enjoy or and so on. So yeah, living in your bravery more than than you might have, and I'm probably talking to a younger self, really. There's a number of things, uh, yeah, I, I'm not regret, but I wish I'd stepped into and I may not have. So be brave. Be brave and back yourself. I like that, Ross. Very nice. Yeah, step into that. Definitely definitely hold yourself up and back yourself. And the potential is then greater. If you're discounting yourself or questioning yourself before anybody else does, you can't reach your own potential. So be brave. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Ross, on all topics that we've covered today. Really appreciated it. Um, above all else, you and I catching up, uh, we should do this far more often. I've always enjoyed every interaction we've ever had, even the challenging ones. And of course, uh, they happen from time to time. Uh, it's yeah. been such thank a you. delight, Ross. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for sharing your insights with our audience. That's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking. You've been listening to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears. We really hope you enjoyed this great interview with Ross Nickel talking about team performance, team culture, and team charters. Please do remember to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast service so that you are notified of all of our future episodes. And it would be greatly appreciated if you could go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. You can also follow us on social media through LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. 
or catch our new YouTube channel where we bring you frequent videos on leadership topics. Or you can join our new Facebook community group and engage with us in the conversation. That's it for today. Please do take care, look out for each other, always remember to challenge the status quo. listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to The Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.